you have your Bible with you this evening, I'd like you to turn to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 3. If there's someone nearby who doesn't have a Bible, maybe you'd be kind enough to share with them so that they can follow along. But Matthew chapter 3 this evening, and we are going through this gospel of Matthew, thinking about the birth and the life and the death and resurrection, ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, we're really still in the preliminaries when we're in chapter 3. This chapter focuses on the ministry of John the Baptist, which was a ministry of forerunning. He was the forerunner to the Lord Jesus, the messenger that went before him, preparing the way of the Lord. And we read in chapter 3 and verse 1 of Matthew's Gospel, In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, and make his paths straight. And the same John had his raiment, his clothes of camel hair, and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea, and all the region round about Jordan, and were baptized of him, uh, in Jordan, confessing all their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits made for meat for repentance, and think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And we trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. About 15 years ago, my wife and I took a cruise to the Far East. We were celebrating our silver wedding anniversary. And we went off to the Far East for that occasion. And uh, we boarded our cruise ship in Hong Kong. But before uh, we got on the ship, we had four nights just to spend in that bustling uh, island city. And uh, the thing about Hong Kong, if you've been, you'll recognize this. But I said to my wife, I felt a little bit deceived. I'd come to Hong Kong and discovered that it's basically a, a shopping mall on an island. That It's just shopping everywhere you look. And, uh, you know, every night and every day we spent shopping, shopping, shopping. They had markets that were two miles long. Can you imagine it? Two miles of market. What a misery. But nevertheless, that's how it was. And so we went out shopping through all these markets, through all of these expensive stores and, and department stores. And, you know, it was just endless shopping. And, and one particular day we, we got up early. We started out at 8 o'clock in the morning. And it was all day shopping, literally until 9 o'clock at night. And finally, we got on the subway home, on the, on the uh, underground home, and uh, we're heading back to our hotel. We get out of the underground station, and uh, instead of turning left for our hotel, 
We turned right. Now I have to tell you, my feet were walked off me. And the last thing I wanted to do was to extend that journey. But we turned right instead of turning left. And we walked in that direction, believing our hotel was down that road. And we walked probably for about a mile and a half before we realized our mistake. Which effectively made what was a one-mile journey into a four-mile journey. And the last thing I wanted at nine o'clock at night, having spent all day long on my feet, and my feet were crying out for rest, the last thing I wanted was an extra four miles uh, to walk. Uh, But we made this terrible mistake. And when we finally made it and we walked the four miles back, or the, the two and a half miles back from where we were to our hotel, we get into our hotel room, and uh, I guess it's one of those things you maybe have to have been there to appreciate it. But we kicked our shoes off, and the both of us lay on the bed and laughed hysterically from exhaustion. It was just exhaustion. We lay there and laughed and laughed like we were two lunatics. And we, even to this day, we laugh about that. Now, the thing that we should have done, of course was to have properly got our bearings when we came out from the underground station and made sure we were going the right way. But instead we went the wrong way and we were going further and further and further away from our home until at last we had to turn around and correct our path and make our way back to the hotel. Now that's what repentance is. I want to speak to you tonight about repentance. And that's what repentance is. Isaiah the prophet said this. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all taken a wrong turn. We've turned everyone to his own way. We've each one thought, well, this is the right direction. My life is going in the right way. But the Bible says that this is a mistake. And that's our problem. We are going the wrong direction. And with every step of our, of our journey, we are moving farther and farther and farther away from God and from his heavenly home. So the Bible calls upon all men to turn around. Turn around and go back to God. Turn around and go back to Christ. Now in Matthew chapter 3, we have a preacher We call him John the Baptist, though he wasn't a Baptist, he was a Jew. Uh, He he lived before Baptist churches ever came along. He was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets and his mission was to prepare Israel for the arrival of their promised Messiah, for the arrival of Jesus. And so he pointed men and women to Jesus. He came, the Bible tells us, in the spirit of the Old Testament prophet Elijah, He dressed like Elijah. Uh, He lived very much as Elijah lived. He spent a lot of time in the wilderness. And his message could be summed up in this one word. Repent. He kept telling people to repent. Now we don't hear a lot about this word from the pulpits of, uh, of, uh, of Northern Ireland today. You know many preachers prefer to give you what I call you call the gospel light. They like to come and tell you the good news that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And if you'll believe on Jesus, everything's just going to be rosy in your garden. Well, I've got news for you. That's not the gospel. Because you can't receive the good news until you hear, first of all, the bad news. And the bad news is that all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. 
that we're wandering down a path that is in the opposing direction to where God is and where heaven is and where forgiveness is and where salvation is. And so John called upon people to repent, to turn around. I'm calling on you tonight, if you're not a Christian already, to repent, to turn around. John said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus said exactly the same thing. His very first sermon, his very first words were, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the apostle Peter said this, repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. But what is this rather old-fashioned, archaic word, repent meeting. Maybe you've seen an old preacher sometime and he's walking down the street and he has one of those A-frames on his body and, he's, and it says, repent and believe the gospel. And you look at it and you think, well, where does this guy come from? And you know, maybe you think of him as something out of a Dickens novel or something. Uh, but you, know, you think, what does that mean? Repent, it's such, a, it's such an austere term. It, it's, it's, it's foreign to our ears. Well, it's not that hard a term to understand. And I want to explain it to you tonight. You see, what it means to repent is is this. It's about knowing where I've gone wrong. Knowing where I've gone wrong. That's called conviction of sin. Conviction of sin. A number of years ago, there was an old lady in a church that I was a member of. And uh, she took me aside one day. I was just a young man, wasn't long married. She said to me, David, you wouldn't do me a favor. She said, I got a, I got a, a chest of drawers from MFI. You remember MFI? It's like the Ikea of the 1970s and 80s. Everything came in flat packs and had to be built from scratch. It was a nightmare. But anyway, um, so she said, I got this chest of drawers uh, from MFI. She says, there was a couple of young fellas in church. She, she named them. I'll not name them to save their embarrassment in case they're listening in. But, uh, but she named them. And uh, she said, they had, they had begun, but they, they hadn't finished the job. Well, when she mentioned the two boys that were on the job, I knew this was going to be a problem. So I went along to her house. And honestly, you've never seen a worse chest of drawers in your entire life. It was supposed to be a six-drawer set. It had been turned into a five-drawer set. There was bits and pieces that were sitting on the floor beside it. The instructions were still in their wrapper, unopened. Unopened. And there were saw marks. Saw marks, no less, on this piece of new furniture. Now, let me tell you something. The minute you take out a saw to a piece of flat-pack furniture, you've got it wrong. You never use a saw on flat-packed furniture. But that's what they'd done. They'd made an absolute hash of this thing. And you would have thought at some point they would have realized their mistake. You would have thought when one of them said to the other, let's get a saw, that the other would have said, you know what, I don't think we're doing this right. But no, 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 they carried on. They continued, and in the end, I had to take the whole thing apart. I rebuilt it. I apologized to the lady because there was only five drawers instead of six, but she couldn't do anything with the sawn drawer. And uh, she had to accept it as it was. You see, here was the problem. They realized, surely must have realized they were going wrong, but they didn't turn around. And it was a disaster. And oftentimes, people are like that in life's journey. You see, 
We've made a real mess of things. And, and you know, we've maybe not even looked into God's book. And if you tell them, you know, listen, your life is, is not going the right direction. And the problems you're having is because you haven't come to Christ. And, you, you know, you need to be saved. And, and you, they look at you like, like you're a crazy. They look at you askance like, what kind of crazy thing is this to tell me? As if that's the dumbest suggestion that anyone has ever made to them. And yet you look at their life from the outside and you can see that some of the decisions they've made are decisions they've made in ignorance of God's word and you know that if they'd had the Bible before them and if they were living by the word of God they wouldn't be in some of the trouble that they're in and you're looking at them and you're incredulous that they cannot see it well the Bible calls upon us to recognize the mess we have all made of things on our own And to repent, to rethink, to turn around. Now this is in part why God has sent his Holy Spirit into the world. The Bible says the Holy Spirit has been sent to convince men or to convict men of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Now he's here to show us that we're going the wrong way. There is a way, however right it may seem to you, that is leading you unto death. Not just physical death but something far worse than physical death, to eternal death, to a point where God will eternally separate you from him forever in the lake of fire. And that's not a place you want to go. Now here's the thing. The Spirit of God, and he's in this meeting tonight, is here to convict men and to show them the right way and to show them that as they're living presently, they're going the wrong way. Look in Matthew chapter 3 and you see some of the things that John touched upon as he spoke about repentance. In verse 7, it says, When he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that's the religious folks, come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, you snakes, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He says, bring forth therefore fruit, meat for repentance. He says, if you're repentant, let's see that repentance work its way out in your life. And think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Now I want to stop there for a moment. Because here's the first crowd that that John challenges with repentance. And that's the, the religious people. The people who were holding to their religious traditions. The people who came with their religious robes and their religious garb and thought to themselves, well, you know, we're going to get into, if anybody gets into heaven, we're going to get into heaven. John says, you really think so? You're a den of snakes. He says, you people have no place in God's heaven. He says, you need to repent. And he says, don't even think to say we have Abraham to our father. You know, we hear this all the time. I hear this all the time. Anybody who serves Christ hears this all the time. You know, I was, you know, why why would I need to be saved? Wasn't I baptized as a baby? Aren't I, aren't I a, a member of the Church of Ireland or the, or the Presbyterian Church or the Methodist Church or the Baptist Church or the Catholic Church or whatever church title you want to put on there? And what you're saying there is we have the tradition of our fathers. You know, my father was this and my grandfather was that and my great-grandfather was that. I was born this and I'll die that. And here's, here's these people and they're exactly the same except they can take their line all the way back to Abraham, the very first Jew. And they say, we, if anybody's getting in, it's us. We have Abraham to our father. And John says, don't even think about it. 
Don't even think about trusting in your religious traditions. Look with me in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 3 for a moment, where Luke kind of expands on this thought and broadens the detail a little bit. Luke's Gospel, chapter 3, in verse 10, same thing, you know, John's just preached to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He's said to them, you know, don't think that, you know, by saying you have Abraham to your father, that that has a saving grace. He says, God doesn't need your, your background. He, doesn't, he can raise up stones uh, to, uh, to praise him. But you get to verse 10, and the people hearing their, uh, their religious leaders being criticized and condemned in this way ask this question. Uh, people said, what shall we do then? Huh. If the religious people, if the clergymen aren't getting into heaven, well, what hope is there for the rest of us? If pastors and priests and rabbis are not getting into heaven, well, what chance do we have? We're plumbers and builders and, and electricians. You know, what chance have we got? That's effectively what they're saying. And notice what John replies in verse 11. He answers and says unto them, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. He that hath meat, let him do likewise. Then came also the publicans to be baptized. Now that's not people who run pubs, that's people who are tax collectors and who were extortioners. And they came also publicans to be baptized and said unto him, Master, what shall we do? And he said unto them, Exact no more than that which is appointed you. He says, Stop being extortionate, just take whatever tax is owing. And the soldiers, the Roman soldiers, likewise demanded of him, saying, And what shall we do? And he said unto them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. See what John calls people to repent from? He says, you need, you're not going to have to turn around. You're going to have to turn around from your religious traditions. Because if religious tradition could get you into heaven, listen, Jesus would never have come. If you get into heaven by being baptized or confirmed or, or whatever other ritual you care to name or simply by being a member of a chosen denomination, you know, if that was the way of getting you into heaven, well, if you could get into heaven by being a Baptist, do you think God would have sent the Son to the cross? He would have said, listen, there's no need for that. Just join the Baptist church. You'll be all right. But that's nowhere found in the Word of God. So the Lord said, or Peter, John says, don't trust your religious traditions. Turn from those. He says, turn from your indifference to the needs of others. He says, you people have been selfish. You need to repent of that. Turn around from that. He says to the tax collector, you need to stop being extortionate. You need to stop abusing your position. You need to turn from that abuse of power and turn back to God. He says to the soldiers, no more violence on your part. No more mistreatment of people. You need to turn from that. And he says, and what's more, be content with your wages. My goodness, if there was a generation of time when people need to be content with their wages, this is probably it. Every time I turn on the news, somebody's on strike. And he's, a, he's challenging them. Challenging their, their tradition, challenging their outlook, challenging their actions. And he tells these people effectively, just as Isaiah had done 600 years before, that you're going the wrong way. You're wandering down the wrong path. Now unless you know that you're going the wrong way, you're never going to go the right way, are you? I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? You don't turn around until you realize you're lost. When I was in secondary school, I used to run cross-country for our school team. Not because I wanted to, 
I was conscripted to run cross-country. I hated it every time I went. But nevertheless, I was conscripted to run cross-country. And uh, it was a misery to me. I never had any chance of winning because there were always people who were far better at it than I was. But I was sent out in rain and wind and this time of year, you know, to run up and down mountains and hills and over rivers. You know, it was an absolute misery. And this one particular time, we had a competition. We were having a, a, a cross-country meet with a, a, a grammar school. I think it was rainy. I can't remember which grammar school it was, rainy in Belfast. But nevertheless, we were having this. And this, this grammar school had these great big sweeping grounds. And they had a, a little bit of forestry in the grounds. They had a, a lake in the grounds. It was very impressive. And we had to run around these grounds. That was it. There was miles and miles of it running around these grounds in a cross-country race. And so I'm out there and I'm running down the lane. Everybody's way in front of me. You know, I'm, I'm at the back of the pack somewhere. I'm running along. I'm doing my best. And I'm running down this lane and I don't see anybody. And eventually I come to a dead end. And the lake is right in front of me. And I thought, now I'm pretty sure this is not where I'm supposed to be unless I'm supposed to run across the water here. And so I stopped for a moment and had a thought and I thought, well, where am I supposed to go? And I could hear the other runners on the far side of the trees. I could hear people running past on the far side of the trees beyond. And, and the only choice I had was either to cut through the trees or, or to go back and then find where I'd went wrong and carry on from there. Well, that's what I did. I ran back up the lane that I'd come down. And of course, by this point, I'd lost a lot of ground. Got back onto the track and began running toward the finishing line. Well, my teacher, he got really excited because he thought I'd won the race. And he was jumping up and down with excitement. I mean, he was thrilled. He was saying, well done, Moore, well done. Come on, son, well done. And the other teacher says, that's only his first time around. <laughs> and my teacher says, is that just your first time around? And I said, yes, sir. And he clipped me. He says, get on with me. Says, Off you go. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. You know, there's a way which seems right on to a man. But the end thereof, the Bible says, is death. And you know, the world, like my school teacher, might well cheer you on in your folly. And they may say, you know, you're not a bad person. You're a good person. Don't listen to them in that Baptist church. You're doing all right. You're doing well. You may think to yourself that others are, are right and that Christians are wrong and the Bible is wrong. But understand this. At the end, you're not going to be the winner. You're going to lose. You'll lose your own soul. And that's too great a price to pay for going your own way. You see, you need to acknowledge that you've gone the wrong direction. Knowing where I've gone wrong convicts me of sin. Being sorry for my wrong, well, that's contrition over my sin. Look again in Matthew chapter 3 and, and verse 8. And notice what John says to these Pharisees and Sadducees. He says, bring forth therefore fruit, meat for repentance. It's not just enough to know you've gone wrong, that you've messed up, that you've broken God's law, that you're living in sin. You need to be sorry for your wrong. And when the Spirit of God causes you to see yourself as you really are and to see the love of God as it was actually expressed by the sending of Jesus to die for us, we're brought to a place where we sense our own unworthiness. We're sorry before God 
for our sin. Now, there's two kinds of sorrow in this world. And I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7 this evening. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Because there's two kinds of sorrow that the Bible speaks about. It talks about a worldly sorrow. And it talks about a godly sorrow. The first sorrow is a sorrow that is really not helpful at all. Uh, It may well make us feel a little bit bad, but it's not going to bring about real change. The second sorrow is a sorrow that is godly, a sorrow to repentance. And Paul speaks about that in verse 9 and 10 of chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians. He says, Now I rejoice, not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed, notice, to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that you might receive damage by us in nothing. For in godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. Now what's worldly sorrow? What's godly sorrow? Worldly sorrow, folks, is basically, basically this. Worldly sorrow is me being sorry I was caught. That's essentially worldly sorrow. It's regret. I regret my actions because they cost me something. You know, it's like getting a, a speeding ticket. You know, have you ever got a speeding ticket? The moment it drops through your letterbox, you're, you're filled with regret, aren't you? Maybe I'm the only one who knows this experience. But, you know, it comes to your letterbox and you, and you open it up and you see the constabulary letter heading and they've told you you've been caught on a camera or caught by a, a team out on the road or whatever it is. And you have to either pay a fine or you have to attend a class uh, and certainly you're going to have to pay more car insurance. And so you think to yourself, I, you know, I wish I hadn't have done that. I wish I hadn't have done those extra five miles in the 30 mile an hour zone. Or the, I wish I hadn't have done 60 miles an hour and a 50 mile an hour. You know, whatever it was. And you know, I've had three speeding tickets. I'm still living under the consequences of two. I got two in a row one day after the other in the same place. Can you believe it? Talk about, anyway. Two in a row. Same place, same camera. Double the fine. And so I'm still living under the consequences of that. I've got another year to run before they'll let me go free again. But, but here's the thing. I regretted it. But has it changed my behavior on the road? Well, if I'm honest with you, probably not. It changed my behavior for a little while when I first got the ticket. And I thought to myself, I've got to watch my foot. Be light on the feet. Watch your speed limit. And I was very conscious of speed signs and, and, and speed cameras and all of that. But after a while, you get lazy with all of that. And the old habits creep back in, don't they? And what are you doing? You're speeding again. And you'll likely get a ticket again. That's a case of sorry, officer, but not sorry. Sorry I was caught. Sorry I had to do the class. Sorry I had to pay the fine. Sorry I had to take the points. Sorry I had to report it to my insurance company. Sorry that they put up the price of my premium. But actually, I'll probably do it again. Sorry I was caught, but it's making no difference. That's worldly sorrow. But godly sorrow makes a difference. And notice in verse 11, 
When Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 speaks of this godly sorrow, he says, For behold, this selfsame thing, that you sorrowed after a godly sort. What carefulness it wrought in you. What clearing of yourselves. Yea, what indignation. Yea, what fear. Yea, what vehement desire. Yea, what zeal. Yea, what revenge. In all these things, you have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Notice what he says there. He says, Godly sorrow produces a carefulness. Repentance is to turn around. It brings about a change. It corrects your path. It it sets you straight. You don't want to repeat the same mistakes over and over and over again. And Paul says when you experience godly sorrow, there's a clearing of yourselves. You see, you're cleared of guilt and shame. You're cleared of all the past. And you know that you've brought your sin to God. And in Christ, you know that he's forgiven you. And you're going to walk in the right way. He says, what indignation. Godly sorrow produces indignation at our own selves for our own foolishness over sin. Alan Redprath said this, I'm glad that the Bible allows me to get mad. Mad with the devil. To think that he had the audacity to pull me down and make me do that. What indignation. What fury at sin. And all the agencies of Satan. You know, I look at my life before I became a Christian and I'm mad. Who am I mad at? I'm mad at me. That's who I'm mad at. For the silly mess I made of things and for the troubles I got myself into. For the waywardness and the sinfulness and the rebellion. He says, what fear? Golly, sorrow produces a fear. I don't want to go back there. I don't want to experience that sin again. What vehement desire. Godly sorrow produces a heart that desires purity and doesn't want to sin anymore. What zeal. The, the Greek word speaks of an intense heat. Now I'm hot. I'm hot against sin. I'm hot for the things of God. I'm hot for purity and hot against impurity. What revenge, he says. What vindication. If you like, you're vindicated as a Christian even though you have sinned. No one can doubt it because the measure of a Christian is not whether or not they've sinned. All Christians have sinned. The question is whether or not they've repented and trusted Christ. And he says, you're going to prove yourselves to be clear. When repentance is marked by those preceding characteristics, we're declared clear of guilt and sin. Listen to what Isaiah the prophet wrote. He says, For thus saith the high and lofty one, that inhabiteth eternity. That's God. God is the high and lofty one. He's far above us. Whose name is holy. His character is far above our character. He says, I dwell, this is God speaking, I dwell in the high and holy place. Wonderful. But who, Lord, do you dwell with? With him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit. To revive the spirit of the humble ones. And to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Again God says. But to this man will I look. Even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit. And trembleth at my word. That's a godly sorrow. And godly sorrow brings about contrition over sin. Sorrow is not only, or repentance is not only knowing that I'm wrong, not only being sorry for my wrong, 
but it's admitting before God that I'm wrong. You know, one of the hardest things to do is to admit you're wrong, isn't it? Did you ever meet somebody that just won't admit they're wrong? Even when they know they're wrong? I remember a pastor being in the back of a car with a pastor and his wife. His and I were there. They were driving home. They were having an argument. They were arguing about the color of the flowers in their front garden. The pastor's wife said they were white. The pastor said they were blue. They were arguing the piece out. No, they're definitely blue. No, they're white. I'm telling you, they're blue. No, they're white. The pastor got very irate with his wife and he says, I planted them. He says, I know what color they are. Oh, she says, well, fair enough. And all I could think was, we're going to find out the answer to this question very soon. <laughs> and we turned into his drive and the flowers were white. Now you would think at this point he would say, Honey, I'm sorry, I was wrong. I made a mistake. Do you know what he said? Huh, well I planted blue ones. <laughs> Sometimes it's hard to admit you're wrong. To admit to God you're wrong. To confess your sin. What is it to confess sin? It's just to agree with God. It's to give up all sense of self-justification. To say, actually, I no longer offer a defense before God. I admit it. I am a sinner. I admit it. I have broken your law. I admit it. I am unholy. I admit it that my thoughts are not always pure. I confess I am selfish. I admit that I cheat sometimes. Yes, I lied. And, and yes, I've done this and I've done... God, I admit it. I agree with you. You're right and I'm wrong. You see, to become a Christian... You must admit your personal guiltiness before God. It's like going into a court and they say, what do you plead? And you know, if you will say to the judge that you're guilty, assuming that you are guilty of the crime for which you've been, you have been uh, reprimanded, you know, if you'll say in that moment, guilty, the law was right and I was wrong, usually such a man in, in that position receives a lighter sentence. But in God's court, that isn't quite how it works. You see, in God's court, a man doesn't receive a lighter sentence if he admits he's wrong. He goes totally free when he admits he's wrong and acknowledges he needs Christ. He goes totally free. Because there is no punishment for sin for him because that punishment is commuted to Jesus. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He bore our sin. You see, he paid a debt he didn't owe. I owed a debt that I couldn't pay. And by paying my sin debt, he takes my guilt away and I go free. And that idea is laid up in the Old Testament by the use of a particular animal known as a scapegoat. Now, I'm not going to get into that in too much detail tonight, but understand this is what happened. And in ancient Israel, they had a very important high day, holy day. It was called the Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, the nation had to come before the Lord at the tabernacle or the temple, whichever was there at the time. And there they had to acknowledge their sins. And, and then they would bring, uh, before the, uh, the priest there, they'd bring two goats. One goat would be put to death. He'd be sacrificed and his remains burned, given as an offering to God. He bore the blame of sin. The other goat, 
he was taken by a lead out into the wilderness as far as they could go and he was released and chased off into the wilderness. And he becomes known as the scapegoat. The scapegoat. One goat is put to death, he pays the price of sin. The other goat is taken out into the wilderness and he's bearing sin also. But he, he doesn't pay the price of sin, he bears the blame of sin. He's called the scapegoat. Now, that's what happens when a man is saved. Jesus bore our sin debt upon the cross. He dies for us, but he does something else. He becomes our scapegoat. He takes the blame. You see, here's the thing. In in our everyday vernacular and everyday vocabulary, if you say, I'm being made a scapegoat for something, what you're saying is, I'm taking the blame for something I didn't do. Now, that goat is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. He took our blame for something that he did not do. And because he dies for us, that scapegoat is taken out into the wilderness and chased off, never to be seen again. And that's exactly what happens with your sin. Christ dies for us on the cross. The price of sin is paid. The penalty is paid. He he, uh, gives us his righteousness and we'll never meet our sin again. That's a wonderful offer. But in order to get the good of it, we have to admit that we were wrong. There must be confession of sin. Now, we're not confessing to a pastor. We're not confessing to a priest. We're not confessing to a rabbi. Nobody but God needs to hear about your past. Nobody. You just need to tell it to the Lord. And understand, if you tell it to the Lord, you're not telling him anything he doesn't already know. He knows all about you. He knows what goes through your mind. He knows what you had for breakfast. He knows that you're sitting in this meeting. He knows uh, when you've cheated uh, on, on, in life. He knows when you've been dishonest. He knows when you've been proud. He knows when you've been covetous. He knows when you've, uh, you, you know, whenever you've disobeyed parents. He knows anything you've ever done, God already knows. You're not going to shock God by telling him, Lord, this is what I did and this is who I am. He already knows. These people came to John. Look in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 6. And we're almost done. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 6. And notice it says, And they were baptized of him in Jordan, in the river, confessing their sins. That's called repentance. Repentance is about confession of sin. Repentance is about contrition for sin. Confession is, uh, repentance is about conviction of sin. And repentance is about asking forgiveness for my wrong, cleansing from sin. Look in verse 11 of this reading. John says, I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. And with fire. Now, we'll come back to that thought in a moment, but I want you to turn to Romans chapter 10 and verses 9 through 13. We're going to come back to Matthew 3 in a moment. We're going to Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 13. Because there must be a cleansing from sin. We must somehow or other connect with God, be reconciled unto God. We must come and indeed commit our hearts to God through Christ. 
And here's a, here's a beautiful promise in the word of God. We're talking about confession. We're talking about cleansing. Verse 9 of chapter 10 says this. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth in him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, the Gentile, non-Jews. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. God is in the respecter of persons. Verse 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, I know there will be some people that think, well, that's just too simple. I mean, here's, here's how it works. A, B, C. You admit you're a sinner. You believe that Christ came and died for you, was buried and rose again. And you confess him. You call upon him and ask him to save you. And confess him as your savior. The Bible says if you'll do that, you'll be saved. Now some people say, well, that's too simple. I would expect some great thing. You know, I would expect maybe to have to give all my money to charity. Or I would expect to uh, perhaps... You know, go on a religious pilgrimage, or I would expect to do some marvelous thing. But actually, in order to be saved, all you've got to do is admit you're wrong and ask for forgiveness. That's it. Not hard. It's not rocket science. But you see, here's the thing God wants you to be saved. That's why He sent the Son into the world. He didn't send the Son into the world to make it difficult for you, He sent the Son into the world to save you. To make it easier, if you like. And so we must ask the Lord to save us. That's what verse 13 says. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You know, whosoever means just that. You could put your own personal name in there. Whatever your name is. If Bob shall call upon the name of the Lord, he shall be saved. And Mary shall call upon the name of the Lord, she shall be saved. Whatever your name is, you can put your name in there. And when you do that, when you call upon the name of the Lord and you're genuine and you're sincere and you really want to know his forgiveness and you want to know him as your savior and you want to have heaven as your home, when you're genuine about that, an interesting thing happens. And John touched on it in verse 11 of chapter 3. He says to these people who are listening to him by the banks of the Jordan River, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. He says, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I. Speaking of Jesus, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. Now, remember, he's the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. But he says, I'm not even worthy to wear Jesus' shoes. He says, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Now, what we see here is this. That when you call upon the name of the Lord and are saved, God the Holy Spirit takes your person And he baptizes you into Jesus Christ. That is, he baptizes you by the Spirit of God and immerses your life, loses your life completely in Jesus so that when God from heaven looks down upon your life, he doesn't see the liar and the cheater and the selfish person and the covetous one and the adulterer and the drunk and anything else you might be. What he sees is Christ. And your life is hidden in him. It's a wonderful truth. 
You see, to be baptized is to be immersed. And it says, he shall immerse you with the Holy Ghost. He shall plunge you into Christ so that God never after that moment views me the same way again. When I am called to account, he won't look upon my life with all of its, all of its blemish and all of its blotted copybook, but he will look upon the life of Christ and my life being hidden in him. He'll say, there is no sin for you to answer to. But the alternative to this The alternative is almost unthinkable. For John says that while some people will be baptized with the Holy Ghost, other people are going to be baptized with fire. Now that's not a blessing, that's a curse. That's to be immersed in fire. Uh, To be punished forever with everlasting torment. There's no forgiveness, you see, for people who cannot see their wrong. There's no hope for people who will not sorrow over their sin. There's no salvation for those who refuse to confess themselves as sinners. There's no chance for one who will not ask Christ his only hope of eternal life for forgiveness. It's either be baptized in the Holy Ghost and placed into the body of Christ or is to be dropped into the lake of fire. And you say, Pastor, what will make the difference? Repentance. Turn around. See that Jesus died for you. Put your trust in him. Don't trust me. Don't trust this church. Don't trust any religion. Don't trust any uh, cleric or clergyman. Trust Jesus. He'll get you there. You know, back in 2010, there was an Oscar-winning movie, an Academy Award-winning movie, I'm sure some of you saw it. It starred Sandra Bullock. She won the award for Best Actress for her portrayal of a lady called Leanne Tui. The movie was called The Blind Side. And, it films a, and the film chronicles a true story of a Christian family who took in a, a young hopeless man and gave him the chance to reach his fullest potential. And their son, adopted son to be, uh, was, was a young man by the name of Michael Orr, and he went on to become a professional American uh, football player. Recently, Sean Tuey noted that the transformation of his family and of Michael, this young man, all started with two words. He says, when they spotted Michael walking along the road on a cold November morning in just shorts and t-shirts, t-shirt, Leon Chewy uttered two words that changed their world. She told her husband, turn around. Turn around. And they turned the car around, put Michael in that warm vehicle, and ultimately adopted this boy into their family. But let me say to you tonight, those two words can change your life. You see, if your life's messed up, It's very easy. See, what do I do? Turn around. Turn around. Whatever your situation, turn around. Whatever mess you're in, turn around. Whatever circumstance you find yourself in, turn around. A great and wonderful change can happen with just two words. 
turn around. And we can make that one word. Repent. Repent. You see, when we turn around, we change direction. And we begin that exciting new journey toward home and toward rest. If you're here and you're not a Christian tonight, you need to repent. You need to turn around. You need to rethink the direction you're going. You need to agree with God that you're a sinner. You need to come and confess it and admit it. And then you need to call upon him to forgive you and to save you. And here's the beautiful thing. He will. He will. You say, but I'm a... Doesn't matter. He will. But I've been... Makes no difference. He will. Because he's honor bound to do it. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Hey friend, wouldn't tonight be a great night to turn around and trust the Lord? Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you for its truth. We thank you, O God, tonight for this wonderful word, repentance. A word, Lord, that certainly is foreign to many ears. A word that people don't understand. A word that oftentimes looks, Lord, quite harsh. And yet, Lord, it's a word of grace. It's a word that offers us a fresh start, a new beginning. It offers us reconciliation with God. It offers us the opportunity to call out and ask the Lord Jesus to save us. It, 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 Lord, offers us new life and new hope and new purpose. It gives us a new home in heaven. Father, maybe someone here tonight and they know their life isn't what it should be or could be. They know they're going the wrong direction. Lord, help them to turn around. Help them to say to somebody tonight, hey, listen, I need Jesus. Show me tonight how I can be saved. Bless this message, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.